Welcome to Scam This. The Winter Olympics are kicking off this week, but not everyone is feeling that team spirit. We'll explain why these games are the most controversial in years. It's incredibly inconvenient and kind of unprecedented for a country like China that is a very unapologetic dictatorship to also be so economically powerful that all the large companies in the world want to be here. And here in the US, there's a different tension brewing over censorship. First, in school libraries all over the country, where a record number of books are being banned. We've already seen the outgrowth of these book bans in other legislation that are calling for parents to be able to essentially approve anything in the curriculum. So from a teacher's daily lesson plans to an entire academic unit. And also at Spotify, where calls to remove its number one podcaster are growing louder. We'll break down this week's war over words. And speaking of choosing words carefully, we're ending the show by skimming all the hype over Wordle. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, we have breaking news. The top leader for the terror group ISIS has been killed. That according to a statement just released by President Biden announcing that it happened overnight as U.S. Special Operations Forces carried out a counterterrorism raid in northwestern Syria. Here's what happened. On Wednesday night, U.S. Special Forces killed ISIS's top leader in the biggest U.S. raid on Syria in three years. The Department of Defense called the mission a success, saying there were no U.S. casualties. But the White Helmets, a volunteer organization on the ground in Syria, said there were at least 13 civilian casualties, including six children and four women. U.S. officials believe those civilians were killed when the target of the operation set off a bomb, not as a result of the U.S.'s actions. Still, this latest strike comes as the U.S. military is already under some serious scrutiny for how it prevents civilian casualties. After investigations revealed, civilians were frequently killed in U.S. drone strikes. Just last week, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said that the Pentagon was going to start focusing on limiting civilian casualties in U.S. military operations. But so far, it seems like we're off to a bad start. Okay, next headline. Pfizer asking the FDA for emergency use authorization for its vaccine for children ages six months to four years old. Here's what you need to know. The pharmaceutical company and COVID vaccine maker is proposing three shots for kids under five, after finding in December that two kid-sized doses didn't provide enough protection. Up until now, there hasn't been an approved COVID vaccine for that age group. Kids are less likely than adults to get severely ill from COVID, but with the Omicron surge, there's been a spike of hospitalizations in that age group. Plus, the long-term impacts of COVID on kids are still unknown all of which has left parents feeling pretty stressed. But that could be about to change. The FDA is expected to sign off on a two-dose regimen for kids before the end of February because it seems to give some protection. Then parents can get started on getting their kids shots while we wait for the data on the third dose. Next up. Native American tribes have reached opioid settlements worth over a half billion dollars with drug maker Johnson & Johnson and three distributors. Here's the context. 
pharmaceutical companies that manufactured opioids and the companies that distributed them have spent the last few years in and out of courtrooms. Those companies have been sued for their role in the opioid crisis by a bunch of different states, the DOJ, and over 100 indigenous groups. Over the summer, several states reached a $26 billion settlement with Johnson & Johnson and three distributors. But Native groups had yet to settle. And Native American communities have been disproportionately affected by the opioid crisis. Between 2006 and 2014, Native Americans were nearly 50% more likely to die of an opioid overdose than non-Native people. And this week, J&J &J and those distributors agreed to pay a $590 million settlement to Native American tribes. As for what's next, J&J &J is saying, we're paying up, but we're not gonna admit to doing anything wrong. And we're gonna keep defending ourselves in other cases. Plus, the tribes have to decide if they'll even accept the amount that's been offered. While lawsuits like this help communities provide resources for those struggling from addiction, they still don't actually solve the ongoing opioid crisis. And some argue they don't do enough to hold pharmaceutical companies accountable going forward. And our final headline. This morning, a bombshell lawsuit with the potential to upend the NFL. It's been quite a week for the football league. We'll explain. On Tuesday, Brian Flores, the former head coach of the Miami Dolphins, filed a class action lawsuit against the NFL and three of its teams for discrimination, the Giants and the Broncos for discriminatory hiring, and the Miami Dolphins for having racially motivated reasons for firing him last month. Flores alleges Dolphins owner Stephen Ross consistently pressured him to break NFL rules, including bribing him to lose games. After repeatedly refusing, Flores was fired. When looking for a new coaching gig with the New York Giants, Flores says his interview was a sham and claims he was only brought in to satisfy the Rooney Rule, an NFL rule that requires teams to interview at least one minority candidate. And the Giants had actually hired another coach before they even spoke to Flores, which he found out from an accidental text from the Patriots head coach. And we thought our parents sucked at texting. Flores says a similar situation happened back in 2019, when he was interviewing with the Denver Broncos. Until recently, Flores was one of only three black head coaches in the NFL, and believes that the league needs to step up its game when it comes to hiring and treating minority coaches fairly. The NFL is responding to Flores by saying his claims are without merit. So to say the least, it's been a tough week in the world of football. And to top it all off, Tom Brady's finally retiring from the league. After being knocked out of the running for the Super Bowl, Brady confirmed he's hanging up his helmet for good. With seven Super Bowl rings and a lengthy career, the 44-year-old is bowing out as the greatest NFL quarterback of all time. As for what's next for the GOAT, Brady says he wants to spend his days giving to others and trying to enrich other people's lives. This week, we saw a statistic that made us do a double take. The cost of rent is up by as much as 40% in some places. According to data from Redfin, a real estate firm, rents in America's largest cities went up by 14% on average last year. Big increases have been happening in growing cities that were also COVID relocation hotspots, like Austin, where rental prices are up by around 40%, or Miami, where rent was approximately 34% more expensive in 2021. So how did we get here? 
Part of it is a supply issue. A lot of cities have not built enough affordable housing historically. That's Alicia Mazzara, a senior research analyst at the think tank, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. She told us that lack of housing supply had always driven prices up and that renters were already struggling to pay before the pandemic. And when you add in inflation and wages not keeping up with inflation, some people are skipping meals or not paying electric bills to keep a roof over their heads. As prices continue to rise, forcing people to move or make tough choices, state and city officials are gonna face more pressure to find solutions. There's a growing question around who gets to live in cities? Who gets to live in neighborhoods that are convenient? Who gets to live near well-paying jobs? Who gets to live near public transit? We need to make really intentional public policy decisions to make that possible. In case you missed it, Spotify is at war with some of the world's biggest musicians. Artists, including Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, are saying cancel my subscription and have boycotted the streaming service, some even removing their content from the platform. We'll break down why Spotify is suddenly facing the music in 60 seconds. Here in the U.S., Spotify is one of the most commonly used apps for podcast listening. And the reason it's such a big player is because it's exclusively acquired shows from major podcasters and creators, from Call Her Daddy to Armchair Expert to some more controversial shows. We're talking about the Joe Rogan experience, which Spotify bought in 2020, reportedly for more than $100 million. But while Rogan is the platform's number one show and has millions of listeners, it's not without scandal. On the program, Rogan has questioned the need for healthy young people to get vaccinated, though he says he's not an anti-vax person. Just last month, he chatted with a controversial doctor who's made false claims about COVID. 270 physicians and scientists even signed an open letter calling on Spotify to remove that interview. Now, rock legends and other creators and musicians are telling Spotify it's us or Rogan, while some conservative politicians are saying Rogan has the right to say what he wants. In response to the backlash, Spotify says it's going to add an advisory warning to all episodes that mention COVID-19. But its CEO also said he doesn't want to play content hall monitor and censor people. Even though all this Spotify drama is new, tech companies being called out for avoiding content moderation is a tale as old as time, or at least as old as Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. In Spotify's case, these star-powered boycotts could spell even more trouble in the future. Because if, say, Taylor Swift decides she's got bad blood with the platform and follows Neil Young's lead, the company could find itself, and its bottom line, in some serious hot water. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. The Winter Olympics are kicking off this week in Beijing, China. But you may have noticed there's kind of a different vibe going into this one. Instead of the athletic competition, all eyes are on the diplomatic tension between China and the rest of the world. To get some context on why these games are so controversial, we called up someone who's watching them unfold IRL. Meet David Rennie, the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist. David, you're on the ground in Beijing. For our audience, can you just tell us what the energy is like right now that people have started arriving for the games? So you can tell that something big is going on, but there are two big reasons why this isn't like an ordinary Olympics. 
One is that it's China and every big event here is super locked down. They do not like accidents. They do not like protests. They don't like anything unexpected. And so any big event, it's always tight. But you then have to add on COVID and not just any country's handling of COVID, but China is unique as the only large country in the world that has spent the last two years basically trying not to just have as few cases as possible, but zero cases. And now, super locked down, super strict, super anxious China has to allow 30,000 foreigners, who of course are going to include people who've got COVID, to arrive in the middle of the city, the capital city, which is their most sensitive place. And so anytime you think you could imagine how strict it's going to be, you then have to kind of double it and add 10 and, and you're kind of halfway there. How has China's position in the world or its motivations for hosting the Olympics changed from when it hosted the 2008 Summer Olympics? It's a very different China. It's a much richer China. It's a much more self-confident China. It's a China that is much less worried about proving itself to the world. So we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be romantic. You know, China in 2008, when they hosted the Summer Olympics, was a dictatorship. People who tried waving Tibetan flags got hauled off by secret police. We had, you know, a lot of censorship. It was still a dictatorship. So back in 2008, that China was so keen to be the host to the world. Fast forward to now, this is a much more confident China, not just because it is richer than it was in 2008. It's also because what they think has happened to America and America's friends in the world. Every time you hear a speech by a Chinese leader, or every time I do an interview with a Chinese official or a Chinese scholar, the story is the same. It is the East is rising, the West, and they mean America, is declining. All of these factors are coming together. And it is making this a very, very strange environment to be the host of the world. Because remember, the Olympics is all about, you know, world peace and universal brotherhood. And yet there is a very, very heavy overlay of Chinese propaganda and Chinese politics to these games. And I think that is causing a lot of people coming to the Olympics some anxiety about how these games will look, not just the COVID, but are they going to be taking part in some kind of giant Chinese propaganda exercise, whether they like it or not, just by strapping on a pair of skis. And on that note, a couple of weeks ago, some Western countries announced that they were going to be engaging in diplomatic boycotts of the games. And I think for a lot of millennials, this is probably the most controversial Olympics that they've ever seen in their lifetime. Can you remind us why countries are staging, quote, diplomatic boycotts? Why is there a diplomatic boycott? And what does, even does that mean? It basically means that America has said something pretty serious about the Chinese government. The American government's official position is that some of China's treatment of some of its people, particularly its ethnic minorities and particularly Muslims, about 10 million Muslims who live in the far top left corner of China in a place called Xinjiang, where up to a million people have been locked without trial in re-education camps to cure them of what China considers extremist thinking. Because of that, the American government, Joe Biden, has said that China is guilty of genocide. And that's, you know, genocide. That's like the attempt to eliminate another people. So you can see that for countries like America or some of the others that are staging diplomatic boycotts like the UK or Canada or Australia, they don't like having to have a big fight with China. They don't like having to kind of be the party poopers for an Olympics. But 
you can see there's almost a kind of inevitable logic. Once you have said that you believe that the Chinese government is doing something essentially wicked, I mean, really seriously wicked in the history books, wicked, then it does get awkward. How have the Chinese handled that? Well, I'm afraid they're playing on the visions in the West, and they make the point, which is not wholly wrong, that if you look at the list of the biggest countries that are boycotting, at least diplomatic boycotting, it's the US, it's Canada, it's Australia, and it's the UK. And the Chinese line is, well, it's not the French, is it? Not the Germans, not the Spanish. So it looks like a bunch of Anglo-Saxon, English-speaking countries that are maybe nostalgic for the days when white guys who speak English ran the whole world. That message is very, very powerful among young Chinese people. I do think that there's a cost for some of these governments in saying that there's genocide taking place in Xinjiang. It's incredibly inconvenient and kind of unprecedented for a country like China that is a very unapologetic dictatorship to also be so economically powerful that all the large companies in the world want to be here. All the sponsors for the Olympics are desperate to sell to all of those Chinese customers. If you think back to previous big rounds around the Olympics, like there was a boycott of the Moscow Olympics back in the 1980s because the Soviet Union had invaded and occupied Afghanistan. But that was a big political deal. But that was not actually a big trade or a commercial issue because back in the 80s, American companies did not sell very much to the Soviets at all. And the Soviets didn't sell anything that Americans wanted to buy. That's so different now. Every day, the US and China do more than $2 billion worth of trade a day. Your iPhone, everything you consume in your home, you know, half the stuff in Walmart is straight off a ship from China. This is an incredibly important relationship, but with a government that is unapologetically doing things that the American government says are wicked. And so that makes this a very weird time in the relationship and therefore automatically a very, very weird Olympics. The Chinese government said it would open its Great Firewall, which from what I understand is how they control the internet for athletes and coaches to use. Are there still concerns about censorship and surveillance at the games of foreign athletes despite this gesture? So they, they do this with big foreign events. The athletes in the Olympic bubble, they will have the regular internet that they get at home. And this is a really interesting question because if they have an Instagram account or a Snapchat account, what happens if they say something about the Uyghurs or about human rights? That kind of stuff is not normally allowed in China. So we saw a senior Chinese police official recently say that you couldn't break Chinese law, athletes would have to obey Chinese law and not, could not just say what they liked when they're here. We have to assume that China wants to have a kind of good-looking Olympics, so they don't want to drag some famous athlete out in a kind of giant net and deport them. It is going to be very strict, and I suspect it's going to be an interesting situation. Yeah, I mean, China's been accused of censoring one of its own tennis players, Peng Shuai. And I'm just curious, if an athlete were to stage a protest, what do you think the reaction would be from the Chinese government? It depends where they do it and how they do it. I mean, I can tell you, if you did it in the streets where I am, you get dragged off very, very quickly, even as a foreigner. Peng Shuai, one of the most famous Chinese female tennis players, she wrote a blog post which was almost immediately deleted. But before it was deleted, people read that she was accusing a very senior Chinese Communist Party official of having had a, a sort of abusive, coercive relationship with her lasting years. And she basically just kind of disappeared for a while. And then in a kind of really creepy way, she then appeared in these very, very staged videos running on state media. She then had some very creepy staged seeming interactions with the International Olympic Committee, who've also promised to talk to her during the games to make sure that she's okay. And that kind of raises a whole question about the International Olympics Committee, which is the big organization based in Switzerland, which oversees all of the games, and which doesn't have 
the best reputation in the world when it comes to standing up to dictatorships, let alone to one with as many sort of customers for their sponsors as China. It's really a window on the fact that for most sports, China is too big a market, and for most sponsors, China is too big a market to really want to mess with China. And so all kinds of people lose all of their courage when it comes to China. Last question for you, David. The opening ceremonies on Friday, the games are kicking off this week. What are you going to be looking for over the next two or three weeks? So I'm actually going to the opening ceremony. I'm going to go into what we're told is the non-bubble bit of the Bird's Nest Stadium. It's kind of a gamble that we won't get kind of locked up for being too close to someone with COVID because we're in this very weird situation where at the other end of the giant stadium, we're going to be looking at people who've just come from kind of the outside world. And we don't see a lot of people from the outside world right now. I mean, this is almost like, whoa, they've come from COVID world. So it's going to be a very strange opening ceremony. We're waiting for it to be super political. So there'll be a bit of that. And I'm also told I've got a ticket to a sports event, which is pretty special. They're not selling tickets to the general public. So they've got so many seats they need to fill now. They've even come to people like me and said, would I like a ticket? I feel like uh, the kid in Willy Wonka. I'm the proud holder of a ticket to a heat of the men's hockey on Saturday night. And that is between America and Russia. So that's not bad. I mean, that should be a grudge match, right? Yeah, that's going to be awesome, I think. Well, David, thank you so much. No, thank you. This morning, backlash growing after a Tennessee school board decided to ban a Pulitzer Prize-winning book about the Holocaust. The Katy Independent School District is one of at least a dozen Texas districts that have removed books about race, gender, and sexual identity after a statewide surge of parent complaints. Critically acclaimed books have been banned from schools, and it's happening at an unprecedented rate. You heard that right. Book bans are on the rise. And they're happening all over the country, from Texas, Utah, and Wyoming to Pennsylvania and Tennessee. The American Library Association said that it's already received a, quote, unprecedented 330 notices of book challenges during the fall of 2021. And in 2020, the ALA reported 273 books were challenged or outright banned. But even though the rate is surprising here, according to Nora Pelizzari, the director of communications for the National Coalition Against Censorship, there is precedent for this. Books have been challenged in schools for as long as books have been taught in schools. That isn't new. Parents have always wanted input into their children's curriculum. What we're seeing recently is a significant uptick in challenges to books in school libraries, So books that are entirely optional for students to read. And so we're talking about groups trying to prohibit students from accessing information that they're interested in. Prohibit students from going into a school library with an interest and finding a book on a shelf that meets their needs or that reflects their life. Over the past few months, parents have been pushing for bans, but so have politicians. The governor of Texas has called on certain books to be removed from schools. A Texas state representative has circulated a list of hundreds of books he wants to ban. And the governor of Virginia recently set up a tip line for parents to anonymously report teachers for teaching material they think is inappropriate. Nadra Niddle is the education reporter for the 19th. 
And she says this content cleanup attempt isn't just happening in state capitals. School officials are doing this as well. They're getting complaints from parents. And instead of engaging in the processes that exist to remove a book from a school library, some school officials are just taking those books out to avoid controversy. Instead of presenting their argument, say, at a school board meeting, and then allowing the school board or the superintendents to then make a decision. There's a lot of concern that those protocols have been sidestepped right now. And that's worth paying attention to because of the types of books that are being targeted. Many of the books that they're going after are books that deal with the LGBTQ community, that openly discuss sexuality, and also that touch on the history of race and racism. One analysis of the banned book list being circulated by a state rep in Texas found that of the first 100 titles listed, 97 were written by women, people of color, or LGBTQ authors. One author whose work is being targeted is Kaylin Bayron. Her young adult book, Cinderella is Dead, is on that Texas list. It was my debut novel, and it centers a queer Black girl and her queer Black girlfriend, and it's a dark fantasy fairy tale retelling. I wrote this book in 2016, and I am a queer Black woman, so I understood that there would be opposition to this title. But when we're talking specifically about the book bans that are taking place right now, I found out about the ban proposed by Representative Matt Krause via social media. And I realized that there was a list circulating of 800 plus titles. And I kind of did a quick look through and saw Cinderella's Dead, saw many books by my fellow queer and BIPOC authors. My concern is that these children are being exposed to a culture of white supremacy and heteronormative, misogynistic worldviews. Our experts told us lawmakers and parents are zooming in on one or two passages to make their case about banning a book, rather than looking at the whole book in context. The books tend to be challenged for reasons like vulgar language or sexually explicit scene without the sort of challenge explicitly stating, I'm challenging this book because it's about racism. There's been this strong push to eliminate books that could cause any discomfort. That's the word that gets used a lot, that could cause any discomfort to students. But for a lot of students, not having access to books by minority authors can create serious discomfort too. We already have a problem with diversity in book publishing where most of the books published aren't dealing with those communities. And so these book bans that are targeting these marginalized groups will make it that much harder for students from different minority groups, whether it's race or sexual orientation or gender identity, to find themselves in the literature that they read. In addition to those students, it might also make it harder for even students that that don't identify or don't belong to a member of a minority group to empathize. Reading books is one way to learn about the perspective of people who are different from you. We should also note, book bans are putting teachers and librarians in political crosshairs, with some even choosing to leave the profession altogether. Here's Nora Pelizzari again. There's a professional fear that 
if a teacher tries to teach something that could be deemed controversial, that they'll be forced to censor it before they're even allowed to teach it, that they'll be forced to sort of dumb down the curriculum in such a way that it loses all of its power and all of its ability to actually reach students and make an impact. And then there could be professional consequences. Their livelihoods could be at stake. And then there's this additional element now of a repeated incidences of people trying to file criminal charges against teachers and librarians for allowing students to read a book that has sex in it, which is sort of an escalation that adds an additional layer of sort of pressure and fear amongst teachers and librarians. So we're at a place where school has become an ideological battleground, where some politicians and parents are trying to control what all students can learn about. But how did we get here? Some of this is because schools went remote and that might have led some parents just to be more involved in what was going on in their child's school or what their child was learning. But also we've had this movement to reopen schools and also in some cases to ban masks. Those have also politicized parents, mobilized parents. It dovetails too with these laws that have come up in different states against critical race theory. So when you have a bunch of parents at home with their kids and you have political divisions over the virus, you get a rising culture of superheated PTA meetings. No offense to school board meetings, but typically school board meetings are not very exciting. So some of this viral footage that we're seeing of parents screaming, in some cases threatening school officials, I mean, this is not typical. And I've been covering schools for years at this point. While some parents are on the front lines advocating for book bans, other parents and students are tired of the classroom becoming a political war zone. So far, students have spoken out against proposed book bans. This constant need to control youth and their development shows a systematic problem within this school system. Some bookstore owners and librarians say they're going to defend students' First Amendment rights, and even some parents are mobilizing their communities against the bans. Kiana Pitts is one of those parents. She's a member of the Round Rock Black Parents Association. This is a ban on my existence, like the existence of my children, because the stories that they're trying to ban are stories that I can relate to, stories that my children can relate to, a way for them to see themselves in the world. They're banning that. And we just start spreading the word saying, hey, what can we do? Show up at our school board meetings, write letters to our representatives, write letters to the school board. You know, we were doing all of those things that we know work, like those type of movements. And so it's a community effort, too. These are our kids. You know, they can change the future when we share stories of our differences and we celebrate that. I don't know. I just have so much hope, like, in our kids. The debate over book banning is starting to reach a fever pitch, and that's probably not going away before the midterms. We've already seen the outgrowth of these book bans in other legislation that are calling for parents to be able to essentially approve anything in the curriculum. So from a teacher's daily lesson plans to an entire academic unit, Indiana, Oklahoma, and some other states already have introduced bills that basically would give parents the authority to 
pretty much dictate what their children learn in school, even though educators are concerned, again, that these parents don't have the credentials to do that. But we're seeing this legislation will likely see an expansion of such bills being introduced across the nation. But if you don't want to wait until midterms to weigh in on this debate, here's author Kaylin Bayron's advice. I would encourage you to be loudly vocal. If you have the ability to show up either virtually or in person to school board meetings where these things are being discussed, please do. I also really would encourage people to kind of preemptively do this work. Your district may not be being affected right at this moment, but that doesn't mean that these things aren't quietly happening or that that they might not happen in the future. So even if it's not an issue right at this moment in your community, go to your city council meetings, go to your school board meetings and make it known that this is not something that you support, that this is not something that you want to happen. I just saw some really amazing kids in Kent, Washington, speaking at a school board meeting, and the kids are all right. The kids are amazing, and they are vocal, and they're outspoken, and they are supporting authors like myself and work like Cinderella is Dead. So I I encourage you to follow their lead. Before we go today, we want to tell you about something that a lot of our friends have been obsessed with. It's a game called Wordle, and it just got bought by the New York Times for a casual seven figures. So today, we're going to tell you five things you need to know about the game, with a little help. Hi, I'm Carly Malenbaum. I'm a health writer at The Skim, also uh, a fan of puzzles. So like everyone else in the world, I play Wordle daily. Okay, first thing you need to know. Wordle is a word guessing game. Every day, you'll have a new five-letter word to guess and six attempts to do so, using process of elimination. After each guess, you'll learn if you got any letters right and if you got any correct letters in the right place. And from there, you might be able to figure out what the word is. Let's hear Carly's process. So my first word today, I'm gonna do sweat. I'm feeling a little sweaty. And that's good because we have two vowels. We have an S and a T, those are common. Let's see what we have. It was an okay guess. My first S is a yellow, which means this word has an S, but it's not in the first spot. My last letter is a T and it's in the right spot. Okay, so now I think about what can go before a T that would make sense. Oh, and we should note you only get one new puzzle a day. So it's become a part of a lot of people's daily routines. The second thing to know is that Wordle was created by software engineer Josh Wardle. We see what he did there, who made it for his partner who loves word games. In October, Wardle released the game to the public. And since then, the game's become another way to help people feel close to their loved ones. It's the way that my dad and I communicate. We don't say anything. We just share our Wordles of the day. And if I do it in two, he's like, wow. Like, my daughter is a genius. The third thing to know is that Wordle has grown a lot in only a few months. On November 1st, just 90 people played the game. And by early January, 300,000 people were playing every day. And the fourth thing to know is that even though Wordle is played on a web browser, it also blew up on social media. The game gives you the option to share how you did on your social media accounts. 
So if you've been on Twitter or Instagram at all lately, you've definitely seen people flexing with their Wordle squares. My dad and I will look at each other's charts. You see which letters are which color, meaning like whether a letter is in the right spot or whether it's the right letter in the wrong spot. It's just something to talk about. (laughs) And the final thing to know is that Wordle isn't so small time anymore because of that New York Times acquisition, which some people online are kind of mad about. But Wordle fans, don't worry. Unlike other Times content, it'll still be free to play. At least for now. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. It's also Kira's last day, and we want to thank her for all of her work on Skim This. We had additional help this week from Sajine Coriolis. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career, with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.